Hello, welcome to PhysioNote Sounds. This is the podcast for paediatric orthopaedic physiotherapists, and it accompanies Orthopaedic Research UK's online courses for paediatric orthopaedic physiotherapists as well. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you from Dubai. Uh, my friend and colleague, Michalis Kokonak, is joining us from London. And Michalis, we are on a journey north of the border to Scotland, a place I have trained and thoroughly enjoyed it. I believe you've trained there as well. I have indeed. Good evening to everyone. I did my first uh, fellowship in pediatric orthopedics in uh, York Hill Children's Hospital in Glasgow back in, must have been more than 10 years now. But anyway, I'm very excited about our special uh, guest tonight. And uh, this is uh, Katie Kinch. She's a lead advanced practice physiotherapist uh, working at NHS 5 in pediatric orthopedics. And she has also other roles uh, that uh, we're looking forward to uh, hearing from her uh, tonight. Hello, Katie. Hello, nice to see you. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your yourself and, uh, and your practice? Yes, so like you said, I'm the lead advanced practice physiotherapist working in NHS Fife. We have two district general hospitals within NHS Fife, and I've been in my current role since 2016. Before that, I was working as a clinical specialist from 2008 all within pediatric orthopedics. My role in remit cover the general orthopedic caseload in terms of all the referrals that come into the service, your normal variants, your knee pain, your back pain, final asymmetry, lots of variety that way. So that's one portion of my role. And then I also work with children with neurodisability in terms of management of vocal spasticity and do independent injecting clinic. And I have links in with the children and young people's community physiotherapy team in terms of uh, clinical lead for them. And then also within my role for pediatric orthopedics, I do service lead component. So quite a bit, but I enjoy every minute of it. Sounds a very, very busy job, uh, Katie. <laughs> One yes. thing that I'm very interested uh, hearing from you is, can you tell us a bit more about the communication and the support with your orthopedic surgeons? How does this work? Was it easy to uh, work? Because we've all been through this pathway until we um, end up to the model that we think it works for our mm-hmm. hospital. Certainly, that was a long way to get there. I've been exceptionally lucky all the way along, not only to have really good communication with my orthopedic colleagues, but to have really good support with them and training. And, you know, they've always been at the end of a phone or things like that. The role developed in Fife in 2005 when the orthopedic consultant who was primarily adults, but with a specialist in pediatrics or a specialist interest in a district general hospital retired and Fife replaced that consultant with an orthopedic physician. So there was already starting shift in who did what. And then myself and a colleague came in in 2008 as clinical specialist to support him. And the tertiary center Edinburgh Sick Children's were supporting Robert Humphreys. Robert was filtering down that with us. And then as our roles expanded, we had direct links in with our orthopedic colleagues. And then when I came into the role in 2016, I've been working very closely with the orthopedic consultants that initially were coming over from children's one day a week. But the the communication has always been absolutely excellent and happy to train, very open-minded in terms of, you know, if you can do the job, welcome. And we learn from each other. Sounds great. And it's a a common theme, I think, from what I've learned, that advanced practice in the physiotherapy world 
is often supported by the surgical community. They're often uh, very keen on that. You know, we're, we're no exception. But I think, you know, you're also very keen on it. You're very keen on developing it. We were talking a little bit before we hit the record button about that. Mm-hmm. When we were swapping emails, you were talking about transforming models of care and how advanced yes. practice fits into that. So in what way do you see it as advanced practice as transforming models? Where do you think the gains are to be made? I think the reason why we've kind of done a shift away from just or to using the term transforming models of care is to make sure that it's not all just about advanced practice. And we're broadening what is normally thought of in terms of pediatric orthopedics, that it's not just orthopedic surgeons. And as we all know, we need to change and modernize to meet the the demands now and in the future. And transforming roles, looking at new models of care, looking at pathways, all fits into that language that we're using. And I think I like talking about the role of advanced practice in transforming models of care. So there's one component to it, because as we all know, no one profession or one role is going to solve all the difficulties and challenges we are facing. So I think with looking at what we're doing, a lot of it is about workforce planning. A lot about is what's needed, because we know that not all children that come to a orthopedic consultant appointment need to have an operation. What they need is a thorough assessment, diagnostics, communication to the child or young person, but also to their families. And I think we've got, especially as allied health professionals in nursing, we probably have that communication skill, getting the child on board better because that's more of what we do rather than orthopedic consultants. And I'm not for one minute saying that your communication skills aren't good, but your focus is different. So I think it's a way that we complement each other. So that's why it's transforming models of care. It's looking at things differently, thinking outside the box, because what we're doing now, the status quo isn't going to work. It's not particularly working well now in some areas. So we need to change things. It seems to me if you took a surgeon from um, the last century, well, you know, let's say 100 years ago, and they then suddenly plonked them into an, an orthopedic clinic today, they'd recognize it. And, and my mm-hmm. kids say the same about school. Mm-hmm. You could take school kids from 100 years ago. It's the same thing. You're sitting in a class of 30 with a teacher mm-hmm. at the front. You know, there are some new ideas, but is that what you're getting at? That's, that's a model of care that is outdated in the 21st century. And I guess you're talking about how technology can help us, uh, how care can be delivered in places other than outpatients clinics. Is, is that what you're driving at? I think that's one of the things, but I also think it's the who you need to be seen. And it comes back to all the GERFT principles, getting it right the first time, who's bothered. And yes, the child sometimes needs to be seen in a hospital, either that's virtually or in person, but it doesn't always need to be an orthopedic surgeon that sees a child at a pediatric orthopedic appointment and possibly not. And that's the gifts and the skills that I think working together, we complement each other rather than compete with each other. And I think that's the transforming roles. We all have different skills that we're bringing to it. So that's looking at things differently rather than just pigeonholing or keeping people in silos. This is so true, isn't it, Gavin? You remember three years ago when we started those series of online courses and then the podcast, that's what we noticed in our practice that we need to find a common language. And You have a different perspective than the perspective that surgeons have, but at the end of the day, the complete high standards of care to our young patients is a combination of the two. Mm -hmm. As you say, it's we both complement each other and we need to know how we need to know each other's perspective 
to see how we can uh, kind of maximize the services that we provide. I want to know this transformation that you've so nicely talked of, Kate, is it something that you and your colleagues are doing in your trust or is it like a more an initiative in Scotland or is it more like an initiative that is going to come in the United Kingdom? I also know you're involved in the different committees and I know mm-hmm. there's been some new guidelines about how to become an advanced physiotherapy practitioner. So can you talk mm-hmm. us a bit more about this? There's so much happening at the moment. Health Education England has been doing a lot of work over the past few years that if you know and are aware of it, then you're aware of it. But if that's not in your field of view, a lot of stuff has been happening and you kind of think, oh my goodness, you know, where have I been? So Health Education England have been working on almost defragmenting advanced practice and clinical specialists because it was so disparate. It was very hard to regulate. And especially as within the NHS in England, as you know, a lot of it is commissioning, qualifications are currency. So they were trying to figure out some regulation of what it meant to be an advanced clinical practitioner. So Health Education England, HE, has done a lot of work within that. And they're further down the road with that as opposed to in Scotland. In Scotland, we have NHS Education Scotland or NES, and they're working to do similar. And I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to almost build the plane as we're flying it because advanced practice have been around for a while. And so now they're trying to catch up with regulation and how do we do this? And they're getting there. And that's where I think what we were talking before we, like you said, we hit record about it's challenging and it's difficult right now. I think those regulations will be good. That's what's happening nationally. But I've just been very aware that for pediatric physio, because we're so small and also pediatric orthopedics, we've kind of been missed out of the conversation, not through intention, but just as an oversight. And there are benefits to not being the first. But when the HE was looking at or how to put some competencies in for pediatrics, the, the people that they consulted with were the Royal College of Physicians of Child Health. And so a lot of it was medical and their five strands didn't include pediatric orthopedics, which that's isn't their role in remit. But when my MSK colleagues in Charter Society of Physiotherapy and some of their adult MSK advanced practice, they only look down to 16. So there's a gap in what constitutes advanced practice within pediatric orthopedics. I'm not a patient person by nature. And I was aware that this gap was existing. And as my consultant physio colleague told me, as I was moaning to him about this, he said, well, if you're not going to do it, Katie, who else is going to do it? So that's where I've started pushing things. So the transforming models of care that I thought would sit more comfortably with because it seemed more generic and more inclusive rather than advanced practice within pediatric orthopedics. If that cell came across as advanced practice is the answer to all of the problems or the difficulties pediatric orthopedics is facing in terms of waiting times, in terms of referrals, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where the transforming models of care came from. And in Scotland, that last one, it was just last month, actually, we decided just to, instead of waiting for things to happen, we just thought we would do them ourselves. So in September, we had a meeting with the 14 board areas. Okay, there's, there's 14 territorial board areas in Scotland. And we had a meeting 
with representation of advanced practice, but physiotherapy practitioners, service managers, team leads, and pediatric orthopedics. And we had pretty much full coverage across the country. It was a two and a half hour teams meeting. We had 26 participants out of 40 people, and we've all agreed to do it again in January. So I think the shift is finally coming. So that's a a long answer to your question, but there's lots of different components. There's the work from HEE, there's the work from Ness in Scotland, there's the fact that pediatric orthopedics hasn't been included in that in terms of the competencies. And I also know that APCP, my professional association, is looking at creating some type of resource and support for pediatric physiotherapists. So there's lots happening. And we just have to keep moving it forward, but we're gathering peace, but we also have to gather allies, which is why I'm so grateful to be able to come and talk to both of you, because you're such big supporters and vocal supporters of physiotherapists and of supporting us in our training, because that's hard to come by. That's kind of you to say that. I mean, I think the penny dropped for us, Michaelis, didn't it, a long time ago when we realized how fundamental physiotherapists are to the team. We regularly have a supply of surgeons to help us, but often these are people who are not career pediatric orthopedic guys. They usually uh, want to go off and do something else. They're mainly, if I'm honest, they're mainly with us because it's they have to pass their exam and that's what they want. They are there to to learn and we take that job seriously, but to actually help us deliver the service, they're not really the regular guys. You know, we realize that the people who are going to be able to help us much more come from the physiotherapy world. I mean, that's how I see it. Michaelis, is that how you see it too? Oh, 100%. I mean, we, we, we met different physiotherapists in the last couple of years. We did podcasts with very inspiring persons like Katie tonight, you know. And we see how we have to work together. You know, it's as simple as that. There's, there's no doubt. But in my mind, it seems like Scotland is leading the way in the United Kingdom, you know, taking initiatives like the one that Katie just said about a month ago. That's mm-hmm. that's just brilliant. Sometimes that's just you have to do. And then you push things. And then people in charge or the appropriate people have to do something about this, like mm-hmm. finding the regulations and and model the way formally. Because for Katie and a lot of uh, experienced colleagues, it happened. It happened through very hard work where mm-hmm. they've been by themselves, not a lot of support to start with. Yes, I understand you saying that you had a lot of support, but it, it, it must have been a difficult way. I know that from the physiotherapists mm-hmm. we work together, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, you know, how can we make it easier f- for the, the new ones, the, the junior peers who want to go that way, you know, what is the right way to do that, make it easier? And, and maybe, you know, we're all thinking, you know, when we train a surgeon, how can we make them better than, than us? That's mm-hmm. kind of the, the ambition. I think just starting to have the conversations about these and starting to figure these out and starting to look at the difficult questions rather than look at them and think, oh, that's too hard. Let's not do it. Let's just continue doing the same because we know the same. And you know, just because things are difficult doesn't mean we don't do them. It just means that we have to take a bit more time to do that. And I certainly know in my point of my career, I'm hugely grateful to all of the people that have supported me along the way. But the path that I followed to get to where I am and the platform that I'm standing on, the path is indistinct and the platform is very small. That's not sustainable. That's not robust. So I'm at a point in time in my career where I want to look back and clear the path and raise as much awareness as possible and build that platform in as wide and as broad as possible, because that's how you get change. You know, nobody wants to be a one hit wonder. 
You want to have people come behind you. You want to have people to see that that development is over time. But I also think, you know, what would I tell my junior colleagues that are looking at that? What I would say is things take time. Right now where I am, I can see that somebody 20 years younger than me would be, wow, how she get there? That's amazing. Everything like that. That's because I've been doing it for 20 years. 20 years ago, when I was in that person's shoes, I had three month old and a two year old and my work career priorities were totally different. So things take time and you just continue to do the things you keep working away. You're enthusiastic. You get to be known as the person that's always putting their hand up. So that's kind of the first thing that I would encourage. No learning is ever lost and you need to be qualified as well as ambitious. And that qualification just takes time. Yes, it's about going on courses and things like that. And I think especially for advanced practitioners, we need to move to that postgraduate training, but you also just need to get the hours in the day-to-day, Monday through Friday routine, seeing the normal, knowing what that is, your communication skills, all of that foundational knowledge, and then you can move on to the advanced practice stuff. And I think that's what I'm so grateful for the courses from Aurora UK, because we need to build that postgraduate clinical pillar. There's four pillars of knowledge, and we need to find ways to fulfill that clinical pillar for our advanced clinical practice um, to give us the evidence, the clinical reasoning skills, the postgraduate knowledge. So there's lots of things developing, but the courses that the training is very good and we need to get that recognized so people can see that and think, yes, okay, I understand that they're able to order this imaging or they have this knowledge and this because knowledge and qualifications are a currency. One of the things that Denise Watson said when we we did a podcast with her and she Mm -hmm. was talking about advanced practice and and role as as a physio consultant, she was making the point that sometimes these roles are created, but you would have to be a superhero to actually deliver this role because you're expected to be managing the entire team, handling all the complaints, doing all the timetabling, you know, work in 10 different places. And by the way, take charge of the research program and do all the clinical work. And she pointed out that nobody expects that of Michalis and me. We are primarily there for the clinical input that we have. Do you agree with that? I mean, do do you think there's a bit of work to be done there in terms of recognizing and respecting the fact that an advanced physiotherapy practitioner has to have time to do the clinical work? Yes. And they also have to have time to not do the clinical work, because if you are full on clinical, you have no time to think. You have no time to do service development. You have no time to do your own education. You have no time to look at your leadership pillar, to look at your research and your audit, your service improvement, because and if you don't do that, then you're just doing the same thing over and over again. And if you do the same thing, you always get the same results. And we're talking about doing things differently. Interestingly, when I was listening to your podcast, what I was thinking of is, you know, my colleagues that were mostly from from England. I can't remember if there's someone from Wales, but I do remember thinking, I'm so glad I'm up in Scotland because we don't have the challenges that you have at NHS England. We also have, and it's economy of scale, it's a smaller population. It's easier to do things with smaller numbers. So my post and my role isn't as huge because one, it's in a district general, general hospital rather than a massive tertiary center where I'm having to look after staff and do some of the roles that Denise was talking about. So I completely hear what Denise was saying in those challenges. 
I'm just very lucky that I'm not facing those. And as somebody leading on what's happening within advanced practice in Scotland, I would hope it would stay that case that we have to value non-clinical time. My role is about at least a 70-30 split. So I've got at least 30% of non-clinical time. That's hugely valuable because that's how I do all my service development work. You have to have time to think. I remember it was, um, it must have been like over five or six years ago, I was in a BISCOS annual meeting. And I think there was one of your colleagues from, I think it was Liverpool, Alde Hay. So she was talking about the physio triage clinic there, mm-hmm. saying exactly the same thing, how very heroic efforts 20 years ago, starting with very simple physio triage mm-hmm. kind of cases, mm-hmm. uh, normal variants and so on. How mm-hmm. these, and always with a consultant next to, to mm-hmm. them, and how these over the years becoming an independent clinic. Mm-hmm. And then they would see more and more complex cases. They would uh, mm-hmm. acquire more responsibilities, requesting x-rays mm-hmm. and so on. And I think one thing that we can all agree is that people like you, Katie, uh, in the big trusts in, in the UK, and I, I say UK mm-hmm. because that includes England and mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland, they have an established clinic and that makes it so much mm-hmm. easier for their junior colleagues to take this on with the appropriate qualifications as an mm-hmm. advanced practitioner is that right it does i think well once you've got one person there then other people can follow so again that makes it just so much easier what other skills is it that you think need to be put in place to be an advanced practitioner you you talked about you know the formal qualifications the mm-hmm. the postgraduate training the sort of rigor mm-hmm. of that you mentioned clinical reasoning as well do you, do you think there has to be a shift in your clinical reasoning to be an advanced practitioner absolutely and there's very clear definitions on what constitutes that and there's lots of resources on our chartered society of physiotherapy website in terms of the le- what's called levels of practice. Now, I'm sure most people know about bandings, which is salaries, but there's levels of practice and they're not equitable in terms of a band seven physio doesn't mean a, a level of, of practice. So your band five is your initial degree course. And then your band six level of practice, I really hope I'm getting this exactly right, but your band six level of practice is when you're working at a a higher level, you're just getting your experience. Your band seven level of practice, which is where HEE and the CSP and NES are looking at advanced practice setting, your band seven level of practice is your postgraduate training. So that's the first bit of the rigor. And it talks about postgraduate training, but They've also talked about pillars of practice, which are clinical, which is very obvious, like like clinical horses. But the other three, there's research and audit, facilitation of learning, and leadership. And someone who's working in an advanced clinical practitioner role needs to be working across the four pillars at a high level. Now, the pillars will be different for each individual role, but you still have to be doing a significant component within that. And that's where there's a differentiation between what constitutes a highly specialist physiotherapist or an advanced practitioner is how they're working across the four levels. So yes, you've got the high clinical reasoning that you need to do the courses on, but you also have a leadership role within service development, within teaching, within facilitation, you're leading on service change, you're leading on research and audit. And that's what they're trying to quantify in terms of a postgraduate degree, it's like, well, how does that fit in? Because pediatric physio is very small. 
So how can our higher education institutes create an MSc in advanced practice just for pediatric physio? Well, the answer is they can't, but your MSc, your postgraduate qualifications can be generic, can be multi-professional, which is what HE has come out with in terms of leadership, research and audit, and facilitation of learning. And then what we need to do is we need to get currency, we need to get accreditation for the clinical courses that are there, such as Bobath, such as orthopedic medicine, such as the SOM course, such as the, the courses that you guys are doing. So it fits all within that. So it's, it's quite a big problem, but that's what you're talking about in terms of the rigor. You need to be meeting that and you need to be meeting that at a master's level. It's a lot of work, isn't it? When you describe it's a lot it, of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> Which is why a lot of people are like, no, let's just keep doing the same thing because my head's just exploded. There's also portfolio routes. If you're currently in the as an advanced practice role, there is a way to do a portfolio route to get all of your qualifications recognized. If you've been working as an advanced practitioner for years, you've got all of this experience, but you don't have a master's degree. If you can evidence that, then HEE in England will support you and help you um, kind of fill in the gaps. But that's just emerging. That's at its infancy. So they're still having lots and lots of teething problems, which is another reason that I'm happy that we're going to be late to the party because they can figure out all of those teething problems by the time we need them. Yeah, make, makes sense. Again, before we hit record, you were talking about being a first generation advanced practitioner. And, and that's kind of how other people we've had on the podcast have talked about it, mm -hmm. almost like falling into it by accident. And the role was developed yeah. as an individual. And you guys are now formalizing the whole thing. The other interesting thing is we, we did an interview with Elaine Owen a couple of weeks ago, and she was describing mm -hmm. all this multidisciplinary working across the specialties, everybody in one team. She was talking about this in the 1970s. I thought this mm -hmm. was a new thing. This is not new. What's new is formalizing it. And as you were talking about succession planning, you know, you, you have to think about who's coming after you. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's interesting. And again, this is where working in silos has become really, really apparent. And this is why, because it's, it's part and parcel of what we've done, but of course, you know, orthopedic consultants wouldn't know about it because you were over here doing your bit in your silo and we were over here in our bit doing our silo. And now we're starting to work together. And it's like, oh, right. That's interesting. That makes sense. And I think also with not being very patient, I'm also very pragmatic. And the way I look at it is it doesn't matter as pediatric physios, how organized we are and how good we think our offer is. If people aren't buying what we're selling, if we can't convince our colleagues, our orthopedic colleagues and our neurology colleagues that advanced practice is a good idea and we can't evidence that, we're kind of not going to get anywhere. So that's why in Scotland, rather than just having physios meet together to talk about developing advanced practice in the board areas where it wasn't happening, I thought, let's just leapfrog this by three or four years and let's just invite our orthopedic colleagues to come in with us because that's where you get collaboration. And of course, when you get collaboration, you're going to get some disagreement, two sides of the same coin, but that's what we've got to work at. And again, it comes back to just because it is difficult doesn't mean you don't do it. And I think there's the tides turning. You know, we've got people that are really, really enthusiastic on all sides, and now we can start to see the value of it. So I think it's, it's really, really good, but there's a lot happening. And yes, it absolutely is a lot to keep in your head. Michaelis, we're, we're kind of running out of time, really, but um, that sounds to me like we're kind of at a tipping point. Like this could 
you know, in the, the common parlance now, this is about to go viral. It, and, and in many yeah. ways, maybe now is a good time because services are, are under pressure. There are backlogs now like there haven't been before. It sounds like uh, the future's bright. There's clear ambition. And once again, Scotland is in the vanguard. It, it always seems to be. Absolutely. I think the, the way Katie described this is very clear what you need to do to get everything formalized, your qualifications and so on, and it will all become mm -hmm. very formal. One thing I would add, I would highlight, because Katie already mentioned, I would highlight is work together with your orthopedic colleagues. Let them know you exist. Let them know all mm -hmm. the, uh, the great work you're doing, because they don't know. They're not aware. It, it's a mutual thing, and it can, it can work better than... Mm -hmm. Don't worry about controversy. Controversy mm -hmm. is part of pediatric orthopedics. There's a lot of lack of evidence. Viscous has a very good research work into it. So different opinions, that's part of this. But you need to be there to discuss with your colleagues. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think actually I'm really glad that you brought up viscous because I think you talked about the tide is turning. It's viscous that is now trying to widen participation in terms of changing the definition of pediatric orthopedics because they have now widened their participation in, on their education committee. And I'm the first AHP on their education committee. So they're already doing that. And we've got AHP on the program for the next two viscous meetings. So again, it's fabulous that you're starting to, to do that. And it's about visibility. And once people see that and they start seeing the evidence, again, the tide shifts. Guys, I'm going to wind it up now. You did warn us, Katie. You said starting <laughs> is going to be fine. I did Don't talk about but stopping is going to be difficult. However, people should know that you're going to be joining us as a guest on one of the webinars, I think. It's, yes. I, can't, I can't remember the date, but you're going to be there. We're going to have the benefit of your knowledge and experience. And I'm sure if people have got more questions they want to ask you face to face, that will be the time. So, Katie, we are most grateful for your input today. Fantastic. Michaelis, thank you for your input, as always. And to everybody listening into the podcast, I hope you've enjoyed that. And we look forward to having your company on another podcast in the future. Thanks very much. Good night.